Hello, and welcome to Humanitu, a podcast that shines light on conversations of humanness and creativity. I'm the creator and host, Adam Williams. Today, I'm talking with Jamal Parker. He's a two-time international slam poetry champion who passed through the Humanitu podcast studio while on tour. He's been teaching writing workshops and performing on college campuses around the country. Jamal grew up in Japan, where he first explored his poetry, and then in Florida, where as a teenager he first came to recognize the politics of race. At Temple University in Philadelphia, Jamal further developed his voice through writing and performing, among other creative and leadership roles. And really, I could keep going. The list of accomplishments, honors, and work Jamal has put in during the past handful of years is incredibly inspirational. But let's go ahead and get to it so you can hear from Jamal himself. And in this conversation, we cover a range of topics, many of which you can find laid bare by Jamal in his poetry and performances. There are topics like identity and blackness in America, mental health and faith. We talk about his love of comic books and superheroes, how that connected him with his poetry. And, well, like usual in these Humanity Conversations, we cover a lot of ground. So here's my conversation with acclaimed poet, Jamal Parker. Jamal Parker, welcome to the Humanitu Studio. Thank you for having me. Really like being here in, you know, old Colorado right now. It's really beautiful. I appreciate you making time when you are in town on a tour with a reading, uh, a poetry performance tonight at Colorado College. So thank you on short notice. We put this together and I'm really excited to hear from you. Today. Yeah, I appreciate you messaging me. It definitely was like, <laughs> uh, like a, I guess you hit me last night with a message or something like that, or maybe yeah. earlier in the day. And I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, why not? You know, I definitely am um, in town for a limited amount of time. Uh, I want to see more of the city and place while I'm here. And, you know, you're also creative. So it's just really nice to network and, you know, stay here and chat with you. Awesome. So I, like I said, you're, you're going to be at Colorado College. And this is mm-hmm. something that you've been doing for a bit. You've mentioned especially through Black History Month of February and things and, and obviously moving here into March. Mm-hmm. What has that been like for you? What is that experience? being that guy yeah so i am one blessed to have the opportunity to you know live off my art in a sense so far it's been a really exhilarating and rewarding experience um i started my tour for the 2020 year in february for black history month like you said it's through my um agency called new era poets i started this month out in ohio i was at wittenberg university i propelled right back to philly for a performance then i immediately went to maryland and then like since then i've kind of been flying in and out of cities the last couple weeks and it's been beautiful i've been able to connect with a lot of other um you know students at these colleges just telling my story about you know my life my lived experience in america as um you know a black person but also other things I talk about in my poetry whether it's in regards to like my family or like you know superheroes things of that nature I think are really palatable to a lot of different audiences and being here in Colorado even I did a workshop last night with some of the students and it was really nice connecting with them as well so I think it's been a really rewarding experience to say the least and you graduated from Temple University yes. last year yep you've done a lot throughout the last few years as a performer um, with your work as a creative writer Mm -hmm. um, you know I I have read that you won an international slam poetry competition or was it even two it was two yeah (laughs) I would think it would take a lot of courage to get up there and you've got some really 
weighty subjects and some of this stuff that you're you're also speaking to mm. and giving voice to. And I think the courage in that, generally speaking, a lot of people maybe aren't aware of what their voice is or their mm. story or understandably maybe don't have the courage to just get out on stage and do it. So I'm interested in in that from you and in that experience. Tell me about international slam poetry competitions and you using your voice in this way. Yeah, for sure. So I initially was always someone who wanted to tell stories. Um, being a young person um, in school, I watched a lot of cartoons. I started writing comic books and my mother realized and understood that like I was writing comic books in class instead of doing my math work. Um, so she was just like, all right, you like to write stories, you get your grades up, I'm gonna put you in a creative writing program. Um, and I actually started, when I was writing those comic books, I was actually living in Japan. Um, my mom was married to a man in the military and he was stationed in Japan. So I started writing there. And then the slam stuff came about when I was in high school. I kind of became disengaged in my writing program. You know, I had good teachers and, you know, but the poetic formula that I was being taught and the poets of yesteryears were kind of not appealing to me. And that's not to say anything wrong about like older poets and like older sure. poetry, because I believe that is very necessary and it influences my work. But as a teenager at the time, I was like, I just wanted something different. Um, that's I was understandable. Really, yeah. And I was really, it's, I was a performer. Like my teachers kind of knew I liked to like, I was mischievous. I had to be not the center of attention, but I liked, you know, being really like I really like sports too so my mom knew that and I won a scholarship for my school to go to this spoken word um, writing camp that took place in Minnesota so I went there and I realized I was like oh this makes sense spoken word poetry is like the blending of writing and like theater and like I really liked both and I was able to like start writing about issues that mattered to me because I saw other spoken word poets doing the same it wasn't until probably my senior year of high school where I actually started participating in SLAM. SLAM, for those who don't know, is like a sports-based um, competition, but it involves poetry. Uh, you know, you have people in the audience who are judges, and they'll score your poetry from the, you know, numbers of zero to ten. And what I found really early was that I actually kind of excelled in that sport, so to speak. I was like, oh, every time I slammed, I was getting high scores. I was a teenager doing poetry slams in Orlando, Florida, which is where I was living when I was in high school, my senior year. And I was competing against adults and I was still scoring like higher than them or like always finishing in top three and stuff. So I had a mentor who kind of took me under her wing. Her name's Blue Bailey. And she was just like, you know, I have some contacts in Philly because she knew that I wanted to leave Florida for college. And she was like, if you go to Philadelphia, um, you know, I have some people that will look out for you and like, you know, will really get you into the the meat of youth slam. Cause awesome. yeah, she had like, like there was youth slam in Orlando, but it was like bigger in the Philadelphia region. So I went to Philadelphia, got blessed with some other mentors who helped me push my work even further. And that's kind of how like I got into the whole grit of slam poetry, like I kind of took the ball and ran with it, so to speak. And a lot of other work had to be done. Like, I wasn't, I got to Philly and I understood that, like, all right, I need to even work harder at writing. I had to work harder with my performance capabilities. And um, I think I was just really blessed to have a community of people who looked out for me to help push me to, you know, do what I love. We need yeah. that. We yeah. all need that. And, yeah. I, and I'm glad you found it. You know, I'm thinking about when you're talking about things from life experience, and a lot of these things can have emotion that, 
attaches with them. Uh, it's part of that experience. It's how we then express ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you are talking to things that can have some political charge to them sometimes too. So I'm curious in what you have learned about how to shape something that has emotion, maybe take some fire in you. That's part of what's motivating you to speak out on these topics, but use that in the way that is constructive in what you're creating. Yeah. So I definitely, in the work that I do, it does involve a lot of like politically charged, you know, statements and issues, especially pertaining to what I write about. I write a lot about my lived experience of being black in America, you know, just how I, to be blunt with it, uh, I lived in Florida when Trayvon Martin was murdered and um, his murder happened when I was a junior in high school. We weren't too far away from age and um, it happened in Sanford, Florida, which was only a mere hour or so away from the county I was living in. So like, I remember in that moment just being like, wow, like, I didn't know what else to do other than kind of ponder and like write. I think I was always in, I was in a writing program, but I always kind of shied away about writing about my blackness. I didn't know why, but it wasn't until kind of like events such as like the Mike Brown verdict that happened in 2014. Um, things of that nature kind of like stirred me to write. And the way that I kind of present it in my poetry is that <clears throat> I'm presenting my lived experiences. Um, sometimes I propose like solutions to this. Sometimes I don't. I think the importance of navigating who you are and your voice is really, really necessary no matter your art form. I've gone to several universities, colleges, conferences where the audience has been majority white. And I still talk about or speak about my lived experiences of being black. And like, there's always people in the audience who take stuff away from that. They're always like, wow, like, you know, you have talked about something that I previously was unaware of, or I had a bias that I didn't right. really understood that I needed to overcome until I heard your words. And like, I believe that's progress. I think some people pay attention to politics, which is important, or like listen to certain campaigns. But I do think when change and activism is influenced in an art form, it comes from a really passionate place and it can inform how you look at things. I've listened to a variety of poems, songs, read articles, that have had definitely different viewpoints than what I've considered in my life and be like, oh, that's informed my headspace. So yeah. Right. And so I, I've seen it described that your poetry in in a more encompassing way, there's social justice, there mm -hmm. is uh, matters of blackness that you're speaking to and identity, uh, masculinity, and other topics and issues. Mm -hmm. I watched your video, one video of a performance of you. Uh, it was titled Colin Kaepernick, for those who are not aware of what that name represents, it was a moment with a football player in the NFL who takes a knee during the national anthem and an awful lot of people who look an awful lot like me mm -hmm. took exception to that. That was an unpatriotic act. It was a controversial thing. It stirred a lot of anger and Colin Kaepernick, unfortunately, he's been out of the league ever since. Yeah. You had a poem that was titled that and I noted one particular phrase from within that whole thing that I'm, I'm curious and I want to bring up to you. When you're performing this poem, this is as if you're embodying Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. speaking to these issues and someone asking you how my presence be some political statement. I would have to be honest and say, I don't know what that's like. Mm -hmm. As yeah. a white man in this country, I can get pulled over by police and I don't have to worry about being Mike Brown, who I yeah. lived only miles from when that happened. Yeah. Or Trayvon Martin, who you lived only miles from when that happened. 
And I'm curious if you would be able to share or elaborate on what that means, what you're speaking to in that poem when you're talking about your presence yeah. being a political statement. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the title of the poem is like Colin Kaepernick. And the funny thing about that poem is actually, um, I was actually writing from the perspective of his knees, um, as if his knees uh, were yes, speaking yes. to the audience. And, um, what's really funny is I don't even watch football like that, but, um, the whole, like we talked about like the controversy of the, the whole protest itself of him taking a kneeling was something that the whole country was aware of. You didn't even have to watch sports to know what was going on. And for me, you know, the line, how my presence be some political statement, I think speaks to the realm of, yes, there are certain things that people who are marginalized and people who are of different identities um, live through every day. And like, for instance, you could build a mosque and this is just me making a comparison, but like you could put a mosque somewhere in middle in middle America and then people in that area might feel some type of way about it. And like all it, all it's doing is it, is it's existing, but its existence is different from, I guess, what we would know as the contemporary norm. I lived in Florida for a good part of my middle school and high school career. I didn't know how offensive, at least to my people, the Confederate flag was until I had to kind of, I kind of came about that knowledge in like junior year of high school, senior year of high school. And I was like, huh, like that is a political statement itself. Just the presence of a, of a, of a flag right. or the presence of a Confederate flag is also a political statement. Presence of something can speak volumes and it doesn't have to say anything. And I think that speaks to the fact that Colin Kaepernick never even like when he was kneeling on the when the anthem was playing, it's not like he was shouting on the field while it was happening. He right. wasn't. He didn't grab the microphone while someone was singing. All he was doing was kneeling. But so many people took issue with that, and like I just always feel like it. It, it informs a lot of things. One, I think it's like you don't necessarily have to even speak or say anything for your presence to be political. But also, it just also informs that if someone were to take part in protests, there are other forms of protest other than like vocal protests. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take a breath from some of these deeper topics, <laughs> yeah, G- yeah, give you a chance. I want mm-hmm. to step back to where you started with poetry because mm-hmm. I think that had to do with the comic books yeah. uh, and that there maybe is is a way, there's something there that's deeper about mm-hmm. that. I'm curious about what that connection is for you and how you have taken your interest in comic books. You mentioned superheroes a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. And w- what is that connection for you between those as a way in creatively or Mm -hmm. to how you present them i don't know you tell me so my friends and my family know that i'm a huge marvel and dc comic book fan i grew up watching justice league unlimited teen titans all that stuff my uncle is also a really huge fan of comic books my former stepfather was also a huge fan of like superheroes i always looked at so i was i'm not gonna i'm growing up i'm a short guy like i was always kind of small um i was really athletic though and like i always like looked up to superheroes because they were like just really awesome but they also had these powers and they were able to do um extraordinary things and as a kid I kind of saw myself in that because I was just like all right like if I can just like web sling that would be dope or fly I had a really vivid imagination and when I started writing I started writing comic books and the interesting thing about these comic books they just weren't random like heroes I literally would like 
put I there's a superhero called Superboy in my comic book, which is definitely a character in DC Comics. But I just took the name myself and I put I put myself in the costume when I was writing these comic books, and all my friends were also heroes. So anytime I wrote a story about superheroes, I inserted myself and my friends in the storyline, and I always saw myself as someone who can like not just write a story but also be in the story. Um, so like the main characters of my comic books were like, um, you know, black and Latino, like superheroes. And as I grew older, um, I still held that attachment to heroes. I think outside of just like, you know, you have important representation, like Black Panther, um, Luke Cage, we have like the X-Men, you know, you have really, you have heroes that one are awesome, but also they could speak to, um, representation for other youth. For me, I just always was enamored about the storytelling that happened in these comic books, especially Spider-Man. That's my favorite hero of all time. Peter Parker, a teenager who was able to endeavor on all these like adventures and still have to go to school. <laughs> like was just something like, wow, that's mind blowing. Like even when I was going through really like difficult periods in my life, like I would always, you know, watch like a superhero movie or read a comic book. It just has always been a part of my life and it will never go away. I just that's just something, you know, the blending. I would not be a writer if it weren't for Stan Lee, to be honest. Rest in peace. Like, <laughs> those heroes are really important to a lot of young kids. So, yeah. You also mentioned your mother earlier. Mm -hmm. And she had a role in encouraging you and incentivizing you to um, do well in school, to then have these opportunities in creative writing and, art mm -hmm. and all this, right? In instead of just paying attention to the comic books, right? Yeah. She, she wanted to, to give you some more reason to say, I, I encourage this. Um, what is that relationship, in, you know, in, in her role in supporting you for that? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I was actually on the phone with my mom when I was in Boston, and she felt kind of bad because she was just like, oh, like, I wish I can, like, um, she hasn't been to one of my poetry performances since probably high school because I haven't gone back to Florida for a show in a long time. But, like, for me being a middle school or a high school aged um, adolescent and her being like, hey, I'm going to put you in this program because you like writing stories was really influential to my growth. I don't think I would be a writer. Probably I would still be, but I wouldn't be where I'm at now if it weren't for my mom instilling in me to like go through these programs, but also holding me accountable to keep my grades up. Um, when I was in high school, my first year of high school, I did not have good grades. I was, already, I was still in a writing program, but my first year of high school, I definitely slipped up. And my mother was just like, you need to get your act together because, like, I want you to go to college. I want you to do these things that, like, my mom had gone to college. She had to drop out because she had me. But she later, you know, got her bachelor's degree. But she wanted me, especially I was the oldest. I was the oldest boy. And she was just, like, she was always willing to propel me to the, you know, the highest of my dreams. And I think that's really important. My relationship with her is that she always, to this day, believes in me, always supportive, and she's really proud. And I'm just like very thankful of my relationship with her because I know a lot of parents who were like telling their kids and especially in the college, like you need to be this type of major to succeed in life or you need to like go this route to succeed in life. My mom never did that to me. She knew what I liked and she was like, all right, move forward. Just I'm gonna hold you accountable with certain things. So she encouraged overall thriving and success, mm -hmm. but in your own lane. Yeah, exactly. She saw what was in you maybe mm -hmm. and it was like, you can do this. You you can go for it. Yeah, exactly. She never at one point was just like, oh, I see you as like a lawyer or a doctor. So you need to like stick with that. Like she never projected anything on me. She knew what my passions were. 
And she does that with all of her kids, too. She's never going to tell us explicitly, like, you have to go this route. Because we weren't bad kids, either. It's not like I was out here <laughs> doing dumb stuff. Like, she knew I was a good, you know, I was really well-rounded, but I also needed to be held accountable at times. When you're on stage, you have, I think, a sense of some stage, right? Normal, you know, kind of sense of that, right? I, I saw that in your TEDx talk at Temple mm -hmm. University. Also a video online. And I'm curious about what that experience is for you, mm. that thing that you're facing that might be kind of wanting you to, you know, that fear that's kind of saying, oh, man, don't get out there. This <laughs> is scary. But you go through that. And what is that, that process maybe for you? How do you overcome that? And what is it when you get on stage and the words start flowing yeah. to the crowd? That's a great question. My whole life, I've actually dealt with anxiety. And I didn't realize it until probably recently in college. I still, to this day, might like get jittery before a performance. But I, you know, through the training, I guess, I've gone through since I was a participant in slam poetry. And I would do this for sport. And also because I was always someone who was like extroverted in speaking just in general. I found ways to kind of navigate my nervousness. Like I might like if I'm... One of the things my mentors have instilled in me is that my story is my story. My voice is my voice. No one can take that away from me. And no one in the audience is rooting for you to fail. So it's just like, you know, once you know that, like, people in the audience either has come, have come out to see you or they're a part of a program and you're a part of the program as well. You're invested in this shared space together. No one wants to see you fail. That's and a good people, point. Yeah, and people want to, you know... If you obviously are here for whether it's a TEDx talk, a poetry performance, or just a public speaking event, they're here to cultivate and learn with you. For me, I always know that like, even if it's an older poem that I'm about to perform, there's someone who's going to receive this, and there's someone who's going to take away something that they did not know about prior to me speaking. And yeah, that's kind of how I deal with it. I also take deep breaths before I even speak on a microphone. I take time to kind of like rest in with myself i took deep breaths before we even did this podcast kind of helps me center everything before i go on stage or before i start speaking but i think everyone has their own techniques in going about that but those are mine i just always remember that like no one's rooting for you to fail everyone's sharing this shared space together and just like center yourself before you even you know go out and i think one of my other mentors his name is vision he's um he always tells me remember why you wrote it if you remember explicitly why you're here to do what you're doing then like nothing can stop you. You mentioned anxiety mm -hmm. and you have some of your work, some of your poetry that speaks to mental health mm -hmm. things. When you do that, is that coming from your own space? Can, can you tell me about what that mental health is, why that's important to you to speak to that in your poetry and in your work and from a stage? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> at least in my community, you know, the black community, a lot of times, and I grew up in church, so like I wasn't really... Um, I didn't implore or explore rather what mental health or like what that kind of realm of my psyche was like. I was just, you know, once like I knew for a fact I would get jittery certain times if I like was endeavoring on something. I was just like, oh, it's stage fright and stuff like that. But I would even have like jittery before like a test and stuff. And, um, you know, I even also go through bouts. This was more so in college where I was going through like some bouts of like being like depressed and I kind of understood through like some you know therapy that I had endeavored on in college one it's a per I mean more people go through not battles but have their own mental health things going on and for me it's better to just acknowledge it and be real about it 
then kind of shy away from it. I don't think I've like self-sabotaged or anything. Like I'm not like suicide or anything, but a lot of normal working adults go through situations where their mental health might not be at the best at the moment. And for me, if I reach that point, I'm going to be very honest with myself and I explore that in my writing. I've written some poems where I've talked about, especially within the black community, about like how I, my relationship to my mental health and even my faith have kind of made me who I am today. I'm someone who like, yes, I understand the teachings that were taught to me in church, but I'm going to be really real about like how mental health affects young adults as well. And like teenagers, for instance, like I think a lot of teenagers, a lot of people overlook, you know, teenagers are just going through the phases and all that other stuff. Nah, some teenagers are going through really real stuff and we need to pay attention to that. And I think that's something, you know, I'm not a mental health advocate. I'm not someone who's an expert. I didn't study it, but I do know I'm someone who experiences, you know, certain levels of anxiety and I've had bouts of depression. So I'm just going to be real about my experiences in hopes that someone else can like understand that it is okay to go through those things. Right. Have you established or or noticed for yourself a line where, okay, this one's really private and personal Mm. and vulnerable and that's staying with me. Yeah. And this, you know what, there's value if I share this publicly. How do you decide where that line is Mm. when what you're sharing is so much about your lived experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I've performed on so many stages where there's several different audiences whether it's stories about me and my brother, me and my reality of race in America. But when it comes to mental health, you're right. You, that's a really, really, really vulnerable topic. And for me, I write more on my phone nowadays than my own journal and laptop. And for times where I'm really like, maybe I'm going through it. Maybe I'm going through things such as like, like postgraduate depression was a thing for me. I graduated Temple. I was navigating my, you know, got the diploma or not the diploma degree and everything. And I was like, wow, like what's next? And like, you know, I was really contemplating the next steps of my life and kind of struggling with that to a sense. So for me, I would always like write notes in my journal about what I wanted or what I was going through. And like those do stay to myself because I do think there is a, not a responsibility on me as an artist. Like as an artist, I'm definitely going to speak to certain things that are important. And I believe my voice is valuable but I also do think as a, someone who's in a relationship with myself, because I'm it's only one person, I'm only going to, you know, right, you only live right. one sort of thing. I'm going to be kind to myself and I'm going to have, um, you know, some people pray, some people meditate. Um, I write and like, you know, for me, writing down whether it's one or two lines about like what I'm going through or like releasing what I'm going through in my phone notes app is kind of therapeutic for me. Um so I kind of, that's kind of how, what I do to draw the line. Like, it's not really a certain subject I draw a line on, but I do know if like, if I don't want to share this with the world, it's going on my notes app on my phone <laughs> and like, hope maybe I'll transcribe in like a journal or something. Cause I know iCloud's be getting hacked nowadays. So <laughs> you, you mentioned faith as well. Is that something that still is, is part yeah. of your life? Um, so I guess it's, it's a good question because I really was raised in the church. Ever since I was like four, my mom had us in church. Then when she married my former stepfather, he was like, you know, a minister. So I was in the church all the time. It wasn't until she separated from him that I was around 14. We didn't go to church as much anymore. But I still held on to this idea of faith um, and what that looks like. For me, I don't regularly attend church anymore. I don't pray over my meals or anything. I'll do that if I'm with my family. Um, But for me, my relationship with my faith is more so a personal one if you can say that like 
I acknowledge that there is probably a higher being or some kind of power that's made all this. I think I'm less focused on what has been written in the biblical text, if that makes sense. Because I found it kind of difficult to grasp um, certain t- translations of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And even with my conversations with my mom, like we both are very, I guess you could say spiritual people. I do think, you know, I believe in myself a lot more. And I think that like I have made leaps of faith in my life that have been aided by a higher power or my ancestors as well. Because, you know, my ancestors went through very difficult experiences. And I believe, you know, I was an African-American studies um, student. Um, so I studied African-American studies. And like one of the things we kind of learn is that like, it's kind of like how your ancestors in a sense watch over you still. So I believe that, you know, each day that my ancestors are also kind of like pushing me forward as well. So that's kind of what my faith is right now. It's not like a concrete, I believe in God sort of thing, but I do think that there's something greater than us and I do my best. And I still credit God. Like I still, even though I'm like not explicitly saying like God and stuff, like sometimes if something great happens or even something terrible happens, I'll be like, oh, God, like (laughs) I'll just say that phrase or, you know the word well it gets it gets ingrained in there when we i think grow up with that Mm -hmm. and so there is there is an aspect of that but i really some of the things you've said here about that relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. being so important and all this creative flow and all these things there is a spiritual and creative power that is so heavily overlapped there i think Mm -hmm. and it's sort of you know different than maybe the dogmatic bigger organized religion thing where there's a worship of another being in this case i see it as how you express yourself mm-hmm. how you live your daily life and that that comes through in your poetry for example yeah that's for sure it's amazing to me that you have that relationship with yourself by the way that you've already come to that place with yourself because mm-hmm. you have to think that an awful lot of people can go their entire lives and never really make the connection never really realize it and certainly many of us that get to a place where we're wandering along on that and it takes a long time to get there. It so. does. And I mean, for me, it was just like, you know, I've lived through a lot of different, you know, I lived in several different spaces, Okinawa, Japan, Florida, Philadelphia, and I've gone through a lot of different experiences in my life. And I just feel like my accomplishments and, you know, my disappointments, I could have been out the race. I could have been given up on a lot of things, whether it was a breakup or like, you know, failed a college class and stuff like that. But for some reason, like, I've always powered through no matter what the endeavor was. For me, like, even my teachers when I was in high school, they made a point. They addressed me. They were like, Jamal, you have a lot of potential. You just need to tap into it. Because I was really mischievous in high school. And, like, the talent was there. It was like, how are you going to capitalize on that? So for me, even I think my I think this is why I want to say, like, what I said earlier about, like, mentors and, like, youth. When you believe in, you know, younger teens and when you believe in children like and like push them like my mom did push them to do what they want and believe in them and hold them accountable then they come out on the other side looking really really well I just had a blessed community of mentors and like family members who always believed in me no matter what and that's why I am able to do what I'm doing today because if it weren't for their belief in me like I do have my belief in myself but I also do think that comes from people who invested in me as well absolutely Mm -hmm. it's important to have and you've started returning some of that as well. You're teaching workshops. Mm-hmm. You've even gone back to Temple and have taught something there as well, right? Yeah. So if you want to talk a little bit about what that teaching is, but I'm also curious about what insights you've already picked up from your experiences, because you're not. it's not just that you've studied or worked with some of these things 
and let it drop now that you've graduated, go find a job. But you're really immersing yourself in what this experience is of yourself and of even with the touring and getting on stage and really taking action in it. So what have you learned that you're then sharing in, in kind of that mentor capacity with the students at the universities where you're doing workshops? Yeah. So for instance, I'll use Colorado, for example, Colorado College, their speakeasy group, which is a spoken word poetry group, were the ones that brought me out. So they're a community and student organization of writers. So they do perform. They have showcases throughout their calendar year. And for me, um, someone who has gone through the slam circuit, someone who has been, you know, a performance poet and just a poet in general for the last like portion of my life, like a good portion since I was 16, 23 now. For me, it's just sharing the resources and the knowledge that I've gotten from my mentors. So it's more so like a passing down sort of thing. I never believe that like you should, I don't know, some people who are older sometimes have this like, I don't want to say a belief, but I always want to be someone who who, who helps others. Like if I know something's going to make your life easier right. and like, you know, it's something that I feel is like influential to your growth, I'm going to share that. I'm not going to hide that away from you. So yesterday um, we had our editing workshop where they're all writers and I, my, you know, my workshop, it was just like, all right, I believe that like, you know, we write a lot, but sometimes not all the writing in our poems is like necessary. We could cut some lines, all this other stuff. So we wrote haikus. So I had them write a free write where they were able to write anything they wanted to for like 15 or so minutes. And my challenge to them was now condense all that into some haikus. So now everything you wrote has to be within 17 syllables. You could write a multitude of haikus if you want to. But for them, it was a condensing and editing workshop. And I was in my former um, alma mater, Temple University, I was the artistic director of my poetry collective. So my role was an editor. I edited all the poems. I think having a tool of editing is important. And at other universities and colleges, sometimes it's just um, the Black Student Union that's brought me out. So they're not all writers. Sometimes they're just there to see a poetry showcase or do a Q&A session. And in times like that, you know, whether I'm billed as like a public speaker or an activist or something, for me, it's just important to build a relationship with them. So I'll perform you know, my pieces and stuff, but I'm also an advocate and a fan of like hanging out with them afterwards, you know, telling them about my life. So like, you know, they also believe that their voices are necessary. I don't believe my, my, my life mission is not to make everyone writers or poets, but I do believe that if you can effectively use your voice, whether it's in journalism, whether it's in politics, whether it's in any other form of art or media, always knowing that your voice is influential to some capacity is all I want, you know, the mission to be for myself, at least. Like, that's what, because that's what my mentors told me. They're like, your voice matters. doesn't matter what area of life you go. Just always remember that your voice is important. Use and, it. Yeah, Listen to, to it. it as well. Yes, right? exactly. You know, what you were referring to kind of some of that older thinking. I think probably what you were getting at, what came to my mind anyway, is that there has been um, this idea that younger people need to pay their dues. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to hold back on what I could do to smooth the way a little bit because you mm -hmm. shouldn't have it easier than I had it when I started kind of thinking. So I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I agree. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's share that. Yeah. And um, let, let's show what we, what we have to help lift up others. Exactly. So, you know, another subject that you uh, speak to that I have interviewed people previously for humanity on it's masculinity. Mm. And I'm curious what your perspective and how you speak to that. You've used the word hyper-masculinity. I'm curious how you define that. What is this concept in your mind and taking into account how we culturally, like as a, 
as a population, not just even of the country, but of the mm-hmm. world, yeah. this has been a thing that has really come much more to the forefront in recent years. Yeah. So, I mean, I can only speak to my background and my lived experience, but, you know, I am the oldest of four boys. Um, and I mean, when my mom married my stepfather, he was, um, or my former stepfather, he was in the military. He was also um, a minister. So, there was this idea of what a man should be, whether it pertains to the Bible or what he was brought up from in like, you know, the Marine Corps. And that's what he was taught. And that's what, you know, he what was instilled in him. So for me, I almost felt like I had to kind of mold myself into be like into being like, I don't know, a hard cut like man of God and all this other stuff. But I just always wasn't like, I don't know. It's like because I don't even like I'm I'm a straight um, heterosexual male. But like, like the idea that I can wear like hoop earrings, this jewelry, or um, I like you know wearing pink and all this other stuff can catch you flack in certain other areas of the world, right. or just like even in America, the fact that I even have like longer hair can be an issue to some people, and or sharing community with like queer folks, and I just feel like from from my lived experiences, I was brought up especially in the church that like this is what a man is supposed to do supposed to present themselves as and like etc etc and I kind of as I got older understood that that wasn't me my true self wasn't like I'm just gonna I'm gonna wear what I want I'm gonna dress how I dress I'm still confident in my sexuality like I'm this isn't and and I also like came to understand that like I had a workshop at the African-American Museum of Philadelphia two months ago and like that was also like you know something hyper masculinity how I was brought up. I think my definition of it is just like, you know, when people just try too hard to mold themselves into like what I guess was perceived to be manhood. Um, there's an image. Yeah, there's an image. And like, like here, fit this mold. Yeah, and in the black community specifically, like something that like I just was didn't really, I don't want to say disagree with. I just feel like there are certain things in terms of gender that I feel are like really stupid, and I'm not being like you know fancy with my words or anything here it's just like that's how I feel about it. I'm just like just let people live how they want to live and keep it at that because I just don't I don't have an issue with somebody like I have this poem called dress code it's about Jaden Smith and he had this whole thing where he wore a dress on a Louis Vuitton cover and there's so many people who are calling for Will Smith's head because he let his son wear a dress and I'm just like I mean, for all intents and purposes, like, Jaden Smith collected some money off that cover. But also, who cares? Like, he's able... That's not... One, not your son. And then two, like, I just feel like... I don't know. America, at least. And I guess the way I view it... And like I said, this is based on my own lived experiences. I just don't care what you choose to wear, how you choose to go about, you know, presenting femininity or masculinity. Like, as long as you're a cool person, you're a cool person. Like, I just... I'm not going to police gender norms on you and i think that comes with me sharing community with you know people who identify as queer you know people who are just helping to push away from what we see as gender norms so that's just how i feel about it you know it takes i would think an extra amount of of courage when you get on stage and you Mm -hmm. speak to this kind of thing and like you're pointing out as a black male where there is a particular maybe subset of cultural norms yeah and, but it's already, I mean, for any of us, those norms exist. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering if you have had any challenge in doing that, if it's a matter of you've gained confidence, have you caught any criticism or heat from someone in the crowd? Um, I don't want, I don't think I've ever gotten criticism or heat from anyone in the crowd. Like, 
for instance, I've read that poem in a variety of places. And I feel like if someone generally just didn't agree with me, they probably maybe tune the poem out. Because <laughs> I have a set of poems I read during shows. And maybe, like, you know, more often than not, they might not say anything about it. But surprisingly enough, that poem has been pointed out as, like, you know, people will tell me like oh i really like that poem because you know i remember when jane smith wore like dress or like yeah like i've definitely got more compliments on the piece of anything but i do think you know there are still people who are really set in stone with their views and that is it is what it is i've never had anyone explicitly be like oh no you're wrong for that piece and da 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 because you know a lot of times when i get booked for these spaces like they're paying for me to be there <laughs> so it's just like kind of be awkward to tell your speaker like yeah that i took offense to that poem but in a larger sense, I guess if I were to talk to uh, a different sect of people, maybe in the South or like, and I don't want to stereotype the South, but, or even maybe certain members of my extended family, maybe they would probably disagree with me. But I do think they would read the piece and be like, oh, because one of the things about the piece is that in the piece later on, I talk about Jane Smith wearing a dress, but I had a great uncle um, back in the 1900s who had to escape. I forgot which state he was in, but he had to escape because there was a murder of some white woman that was blamed on him. He escaped to Jacksonville, Florida on the train. My aunt, my great, great aunt helped him. The way she helped him, he wore a dress to like escape. So he posed as a woman to get on a train and go to Jacksonville, Florida. So I, in the poem, I, I asked, like, I wonder if he would feel some type of way wow. if like uh, today that a black boy is wearing a dress when a dress is what gave him salvation, you know what I'm right, saying? Yeah. So it's just like, that's like the antidote I make in the piece. And I just, that's just where I kind of, you know, come to understand how I interpret it. I personally don't care, but I mean, there's some people, like I said, who are still sitting there, sit and stuck in their views and that it is what it is. <laughs> your, your work is, is helping. I think people though, like you've mentioned before, sometimes a predominantly white audience, mm -hmm. but there are people who are making connections and learning about things mm -hmm. that didn't know that this was even a thing to think before. Yeah. That's and so, sure. I mean, it is progress. Mm -hmm. So you've had, I, I think uh, a good amount of success and, and amazing things that you are propelling forward here. You know, we Thanks. mentioned the international slam poetry stuff. You've been publishing and you're doing workshops and you're touring and all this stuff. So my question is, what does all this mean to you? I don't know if these were goals that were specific or not, but then also how does that influence your headspace at this point creatively and then also how you uh, maybe picture or envision what your future is, where you are going from here. Yeah. So for me, this is definitely a blessing and a privilege. As I've said before in the, in the, you know, in the interview, I have a lot of you know, friends who are poets, a lot of friends who are artists and stuff who this opportunity is something that doesn't come lightly to me. I know that I'm very blessed to be in this position. With that being said, it was something that I wanted to do even in college. I tried to tour my junior year of college, and like I did, I went to Florida, I went to New York, I had some shows in Philly. But during college, it was kind of difficult doing that because I also had classes, I had assignments to do. It was kind of hard, and I had to do an additional year of college. To do it now, just without worrying about college, and like to be able to just meet all these different people is really, really a full circle type of thing. When I was 16 years old, I was watching spoken word videos and like seeing my favorite poets at the time going to different cities and touring and doing all this other stuff. And that was something I envisioned on doing. And I'm able to say I've successfully been able to do that. I personally am someone who's always trying to put my best step forward and looking into the future. I don't foresee myself touring like forever. I do think, you know, spoken word poetry has been such an influential aspect of my life. 
and that's always going to be in my life no matter what. I've been brainstorming about um, if I want to delve into other forms of entertainment and media. Like I said, I was really invested in theater when I was in high school. I didn't wasn't in the theater program, but I like always loved performing. So I've contemplated. Um, I did a, I had an acting job actually out out of college. Um, I was an actor at one of my at Eastern State Penitentiary has like a nationally renowned haunted house, and I was one of the actors during that during their season. So I did that. My uncle um, produces music, and I'm like I've been kind of working on a project with him, and I've just been f- finding out ways to endeavor on fleshing out my art with my voice on a different capacity i'm not 100 percent sure where that path certainly lies but i do know no matter what i do and no matter what i endeavor on my core mission and goals will always be to instill faith and give youth the tools to succeed and to be a mentor in that aspect because that's what was important to me it was mentorship and just letting people know that their voices are valid i think that's like the most no matter what i do i can be tomorrow i can end up being a rapper I can end up being an actor I can might go out the ba- down the path of teaching and becoming a professor but no matter what lane I choose to move forward in I'm always going to have youth as my priority because like if it weren't for the adults in my life when I was a kid whether it was my family members or extended family my teachers and stuff who said that, like I believe in you you can do this I wouldn't be here so that's just my way of giving back no matter what I do I'm always going to like have youth as like my main focus okay Okay. Uh, you know, you've spoken to what humanity is about throughout mm-hmm. this whole conversation. Humanity is about humanness and creativity. We're coming to our last question here. This is what mm-hmm. I, I like to ask everybody as the kind of wrap up summary idea to where you kind of specifically speak to this idea of how you live or try to live humanness, being human at heart, the most human you are, the real authentic you and creative. You can choose one piece of that or there's maybe a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. but how do you live humanness and creativity in your life right now? In my life right now, I'm most people know I'm a really nice person. Um, I try to be really respectful to any human being, no matter what their creed is, race, background, sexual orientation, gender identity. Like, I'm gonna give you the time of day and like be respectful, especially if we're having a shared space. I'm never going to like be out front rude to anybody. And that's just how I was brought up. I was, like I said, I was raised in church. Um, I was taught to be respectful. My parents instilled that in me. And like, I just go about being very cordial. And if people make mistakes, like I will give people the opportunity to erect their mistakes. I've made mistakes in the past. People have given me the opportunity to grow, especially as a young, like a teenage boy when I was younger, like I had a lot of things I had to unlearn. And I think for me being human is just like, I give people a time of day and I'm going to be respectful if you, you know, and that's just kind of it in terms of being creative. I think that is a term and a phrase that especially more recently has sat in with me because I always thought I was just like, maybe just a poet or maybe just like one word thing, but it's interesting. So I was looking at your card and like, you have these several things that you, you list, you list yourself as. And that initially I was kind of afraid to like, endeavor on more being called more than just a poet this one school built me as like a like it was a, I was a public speaker and they also built me as an activist and I was like I texted my agent like oh it's interesting <laughs> they built me as an activist and they were like well I mean your artwork informs activism so that's the reason why they build you as that so sometimes like I think the you know the creative part of what you're asking is something I'm leaping more into because I'm aware I'm always, I've always been aware, I have a multitude of talents and a multitude of things I'm capable of doing and sharing spaces with other people. 
but I think I was really comfortable with just being like, oh, I'm a performance poet, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. But no, nah, there's a lot of things that I believe that, um, you know, I can embody and not put myself in a box. So I think like ensuring space with other humans, if that makes sense, I think humans share a lot of different identities. They share a lot of different spaces. And it's just about being respectful with that, but also informing each other of our own backgrounds and how we operate and move about the world. I think, especially when you have election years like this and all this other stuff, I think it's really important to understand how people who are probably more marginalized than you navigate their lives. And once you come to understand about how they navigate their lives, it will inform your own decisions and be like, oh, never thought about that. Let me do more research on that. Let me be more mindful when I approach a certain topic. Things of that nature, I think, are really important. Jamal, thank you for everything you've shared here. Thank you for making the time to do this um, before your event tonight thank you and before me. you bounce out of town. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, man. It was, this is a nice studio, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. We are just getting it started up yeah. and, and so excited. This is, this is launching, and you're part of it. So, thank again, you. thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. All right. That's a wrap. Okay. So that's poet Jamal Parker with today's conversation of humanness and creativity. A man of many talents and a lot of energy to make use of them in the world. As always, if you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity Podcast overall, you can email me at adam at humanity.co or reach me by Instagram direct message at humanity. And whether I hear from you or not, I hope your friends and family do. Please share this podcast series about humanness and creativity with them. We'll grow this thing together. You can follow, listen, and download the Humanity Podcast on our site, humanity.co, and through the major podcast players. And now here's the question I ask you to consider at the end of each Humanity Podcast episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm your podcast creator and host, Adam Williams. Thanks for being here. Thank you.